State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Hey, FitFam, welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. In this week's episode, I continue my conversation with Jen Yangsma about outdoor exploration and risky play for child development. In part two, Jen focuses on the role of the parents, teachers, and trainers in modeling healthy behaviors for children and provides practical tips to optimize our environment and change our language. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome back to part two here with Jen, and we are talking all about risky play, inquiry-based learning, and uh, in this part two, we're going to really discuss some things that parents and teachers and educators can do in order to improve not only the movement of our children, but also the development of our children as well. Continuing on with our conversation that we had in part one, can you just discuss a little bit about the role that the parent plays in fostering a healthy, active lifestyle in their children? Parents um, have a have a big role in in fostering that for their children. Um, the most important role um, falls to the parents, and educators and and school staff kind of can support that happening at home, but. Parents have a have a big job in that they are the ones that their children are looking to um, for modeling behavior, modeling, you know, priorities. And so if parents are prioritizing and modeling movement, modeling different types of movement and different activities, then more likely their children will be doing those types of things as well. And I know that, you know, if parents are taking their kids out for bike rides and for, you know, walks in the park and are, are going out and doing different types of things, then those are activities that the kids will value themselves. And if they see their parents, you know, working out or going to the gym, you know, when gyms were open, um, but going to a gym, working out, um, then the research shows that, you know, those kids are more likely to be more active. Um, and so, you know, parents have this opportunity to instill movement and the joy of movement in their children. And, you know, it's something that parents shouldn't take lightly. And, um, you know, they have the opportunity to set their kids up for success in life. And it's as simple as going for a walk. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think um, 
it's important that, you know, parents and caregivers realize that, um, you know, their kids are looking to them and that, you know, something as simple as just going for a daily walk with your kids um, can have just this long lasting impact on them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we talk about uh, healthy, active lifestyle primarily with regards to movement but i think within the home with parents it also stems to the nutrition side of things as well to screen time screen time to you know when they get to the point but reading and and demonstrating those types of things right because like if you think about parents like they're the biggest role model in a in in a child's life right like they have the biggest impact um, you know, educators are, are up there as well because you're with them specifically from basically kindergarten all the way up until grade 12, but you're with them all the time and then friends start to take over in that, right? So you see that there's different pockets of people who all play into the development of, of a child and a young person. And yeah, I think that the parents can definitely assist in in fostering that that environment for them right mm-hmm. like is there an environment for change is there an environment for learning is there an environment for moving and um, most people just see the home as being somewhere to live but that's your classroom like that is a parent's classroom is is the house yeah and we we always talk in education about you know our, our classrooms but you could see in this context of the house being a third teacher so in our in our classroom you know the kids are teachers we're teachers but then our classroom also teaches and so if you're looking at your house kind of in that same mentality right like what is our house what is our classroom teaching our kids where are their opportunities for them to learn more in this space specifically Mm -hmm. and so how might someone if we're thinking about the home now and for a parent how might a parent turn the home into a an environment where it, it is now a third teacher and it's it's teaching the right things yeah i think there's a lot that you can do but there's also it's not it doesn't need to be a ton of money like thrown into into a fancy playroom or things like that um but I think most important would be to have open-ended materials. So those could be just something as simple as milk crates and tubes from toilet paper or um, get larger ones that they're going to throw out at, you know, a, a tool, like a hardware store, you know, the, the interior from um, or carpets. Or paper yeah, or something like, like, like that. Yeah, something like that. Like those, those hard tubes are wonderful and they throw them out. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can get those and get them to chop them up. I've been in a few Home Depots and Canadian Tires asking them to chop up tubes for me. Um, so just having open-ended materials inside your house but also available for outdoor play as well um, are, are really great opportunities. I think there's a lot of value in rotating toys, especially for younger children, Um so if you're, you know, keep their staples that they love, but rotate other ones in and out because that, again, encourages creativity, encourages open-mindedness and imagination. Imagination. So rotating toys out so that they're not getting bored and, and falling into that trap of doing the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. So rotating toys, bringing out new open-ended materials, um, just really thinking about is this toy or this material 
um, constraining the play. Um, and there's definitely a, a place for that. Like, you know, they, they have things like kitchens as toys and mm-hmm. things like that. But the nice thing about a kitchen is it's not just, yes, it's a kitchen, um, but it is a little bit more open-ended in that kids are, are reenacting things that are familiar to them. So there is value in toys that promote play for them that are familiar because then that's when you're going to get build on the language skills and the the language development that you want in especially younger younger children Mm -hmm. um but yeah just thinking about how the materials that you're giving or providing for your children what are they promoting what are they teaching um is there opportunity for it to be used in multiple ways um I think that's a a good question to kind of ask. We also talk a lot about, you know, why this for this kid at this time. So just kind of thinking through like, why do I want my kid to have this toy? What, you know, what value is this toy going to bring to their play, to their life? Um, So just really being kind of critical of what you're putting in front of your kid so that you're really just thinking about their development is this going to promote language skills? Is this going to promote fine motor skills? Is this going to promote, um, you know, gross motor? What, whatever skill you're specifically looking for. It's important to be kind of thinking with that mindset when you're setting up a playroom or you're setting up, you know, a, a kid's hangout room if you mm-hmm. have older kids. Um, and then the same goes for the yard and if you have one. Um just providing things that they can build with, that they can create with, uh, creating a space that promotes imagination and wonder and awe. Nature is so cool because it does do that. So, you know, having books that are connected to things they might find outside in their backyard that can allow them to then ask questions and then find answers, um, would promote that inquiry approach and then you know the loose parts and things if you have bigger ones when they're outside you're building that movement so if they're you know they're lifting heavy rocks and or logs and moving them around the yard that they're you know building that and helping that helps with the sensory um, the heavy lifting is a really great um, input for kids who have sensory difficulties Mm -hmm. or or challenges so allowing kids to be moving logs around and to be moving rocks around when they're outside is a really cool um you know dual purpose right helping with sensory but also allowing them to create and feel independent and strong and powerful yeah yeah i remember you showed me because you just you just talked about the play kitchen um but i remember you showed me a video of a a child who's basically making meals in the kitchen and so the now the parent is taking the time is slowing down and is providing the child with the opportunity to assist them in cooking and i know in a real kitchen in a real kitchen yeah yeah. um and so not getting them something that's that's fake because you mentioned you know we talked about the the tyke tool set and it's not a real hammer and so all they can use it for is being a hammer but if you have a stick, then it's a little bit different. But if they have a real hammer outside, then they can start to use that to learn a skill such as hammering nails into wood, maybe building things as they get older. Uh, but same thing in the kitchen as well. If you get them a play kitchen, it's limited to a kitchen. Yes, you can act out scenarios that are familiar to you. But if you bring them into the real kitchen, you can actually have them building things like under supervision, but building things of their own, cooking things and contributing in that sense, and maybe even sparking an interest and a joy. Like there's, uh, you know, I I'm, I'm teach at a college here in Toronto and, and so many of the students have 
like they just say, I have no idea how to cook. That's why I don't cook. So I eat out. Mm-hmm. Well, whose fault is that? Like that's the parents, right? Like that to me, that's the parents' fault for not teaching, not allowing that that student the the ability, the opportunity to learn how to cook, right? Now maybe the parent didn't know how to cook themselves, and so then that's passed down generations, and then you know we can play the blame game all you want, right? But but cooking isn't something you're born with. It's you, it's a skill that you learn, right? It's a passion that you end up having, and it, it comes from somewhere. And so I think that's a, as well something that a, a parent can foster as well outside of just movement is being involved in different things in the home and and teaching them kind of responsibility, but also, um, you know, some some life skills with that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know when the first in the first part, we talked all about uh, risky play and outdoor play. And so what is a, a parent's role now in letting go? right of of enabling themselves to because oftentimes they're led by fear um and anxiety in not wanting their child to get hurt but how can they take a step back in those situations where they may their child may be encountering risk in order to uh, allow them to develop a little bit better yeah so i think parents have a hard role right in especially if you're someone who is a little bit more anxious or nervous about um, your child getting hurt. Um, It's a little more difficult to take a step back, like you say. Um, I think something that's so important is making sure that your anxieties and your nervousness as an adult doesn't rub off on your child. Um, I mean, we see so many children with anxiety in younger grades, and it's I feel like it's starting earlier and earlier that kids are feeling anxiety and And I mean, I'm not a researcher, so I don't know for sure where that's coming from, but I believe that a lot of it is learned. And, you know, if if I see that my mom or my dad or my grandma or my aunt or whoever is anxious and nervous about me climbing, about me going to school, about me walking on the street, then that's something that I also need to be nervous and anxious about. So I feel like a lot of that nervousness, that anxiety that we're seeing in young kids is learned. And so as a parent, it's so difficult to try and swallow some of that anxiety and try and hide it from your kids. Um, so, you know, in some of the research around this, if you're kind of looking at some of the experts, so to speak, in play and risk injury and uh, injury prevention um, here in Canada, they have talked a lot about um, this idea of, you know, the 17 seconds or 20 seconds. Um, so, you, you know, you see your kid, um, starting to climb a tree and your instant reaction is going to be stop. Don't do that. That's too high. Be careful. So instead of saying that, you know, just bite your tongue for like 17 seconds and just watch what your kid does. Um, and they'll probably surprise you. I think we have these expectations that kids can't figure situations out, that kids aren't able to, to navigate these situations and they need us to be doing it for them. But I think if you take you know, the 17 seconds to stop and to watch them do it, you'll see that they actually have more skills than you really kind of imagined. Um, I remember we were outside with, um, it was about three years old, the little one. And, you know, there's this big rock kind of drop. And we were watching him as he kind of was excited about potentially climbing up that rock. Um, And, without any adult, like there's an adult nearby to kind of help if he needed, but 
you know, he slowly step by step used hands and feet and like managed to climb his way to the top. And, you know, he got to the top and he was so happy, but you could also just see, like I was sitting beside his mom and I could just kind of feel her nervousness, but she didn't say anything. And so then the, the joy that came out of him being at that top of that, you know, rock wall. And then what did he do? He climbed back down and went up again. Right. And just continued to learn those skills. And he's building so many motor skills and he knew he could do it and do it safely. Um, you know, if he hadn't made it up and he got stuck halfway and kind of panicked and they helped him down, he probably would not have done it again until he had gained more confidence in his motor skills. So I think giving your child the space or as an educator, giving your student the space to try things and to maybe fail at things um, is a better learning opportunity than you jumping in and telling them what to do or what not to do. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of taking that step back, those 17 seconds, if you need to count it, then count it, but take that time, that step back to just allow your child and allow, let you see what they're capable of. Um, another thing that parents can do to help with that, um, to, to build kind of risk management skills in their children is to use language in a way that's not, um, building anxiety. So, you know, if your kid, we have an area in our, our yard at our school that has wood on the ground, it's like a bridge. So it can get very, very slippery when it rains. So, you know, I always would catch myself being like, be careful, be careful, be careful. But those words are actually meaningless to a child because I'm not telling them what they need to be careful of. I'm not telling them why they need to be careful other than I just am instilling fear. So it's something that I've been working on that I know parents can work on too, is just changing your language around that. So instead of saying, be careful, I could say, I noticed that the, the wood is wet and sometimes it gets slippery when it's wet. So giving them the information, I think I said this in the last part, but giving them information to then navigate that, that risk or that, you know, hurdle on their own. And so if they step on it and they slip, they're like, oh yeah, it rained. It's wet. I slipped just like she said. So now next time I need to be a little bit more cautious. Maybe I don't run full tilt across the slippery wet bridge, but I might slow down or I might go around if I want to keep running at this speed. Um, so using your language to kind of talk through, um, a friend of mine, her son loved jumping off of the stairs. And so, you know, he would, he was young enough that he didn't really know how high was really great for him. So they worked through that with him and found a spot. They started slower and he would jump off of one or two stairs. And she kind of just talked through the, like, you know, when you jump, you need to be ready. So you need to have your, you know, two feet, you're going to land and kind of just talked through what jumping would look like at a certain height versus another height and kind of talked it through with him. And, you know, the one time he tries to jump with all the things in his arms, you know, like, mm -hmm. well, when you jump before with your out, you're, you use your hands to help you land. And so if you're holding all these things, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to land. And so over time, if you're using that language, eventually your kids will start to use that language as well. And so she had said he, you know, one time was walking down the stairs and he's like, I'm going to jump. And then I was like, oh no, I have lots of things in my hands. I won't be able to land. And mm -hmm. so eventually your kids will learn that language if you're modeling it for them. So I think it's important to, if you're going to say be careful, it's fine, but maybe follow that up with why they need to be careful um, so that then they can internalize that so that then it applies to them in other situations. So, you know, the slippery wood, if I'm 
at a friend's place and they have a dock and I'm maybe thinking back to that experience that I had when I slipped on the wet dock or the slipped on sorry the wet wood at my classroom oh and maybe in this situation that's probably the same so kids are able to then you know internalize that assimilate it to their knowledge and their schema and then apply it into new situations so parents have the opportunity to model positive language model um, non-fear based language um, and just provide the opportunity that step back to say, you know, if I wait these 17 seconds, I'm actually providing my child with a much richer learning opportunity than me just jumping in and kind of saving them, Mm -hmm. so to speak, from from a situation, from risk. Um, So those are kind of some things that the easiest and kind of most tangible things that parents can do to try and help manage risk for their children and for themselves because a lot of it is managing what risk you're okay with and figuring out you know what as a parent you feel safe allowing your child to explore yeah and i think and and i'll get you to speak to this in a second but i I think with you know if you see a child in kindergarten who has a whole lot of now anxiety over in different situations or something like that it's it's more difficult to get that child now to explore their own capabilities than it would be if they had developed the that proceed that process through as a as a younger child, right? So this is primarily for those before they even get to, to school. Because if I'm if I'm thinking about this correctly, when you have a child, you basically demonstrate the the hierarchy a little bit, I, I guess is maybe not quite the right word, but you're demonstrating anxiety in different situations by saying certain things. And so then when they go to school, they don't have the, the, the parent anymore, but they have the teacher, but they may actually revert back to thinking, well, no, my parents said I can't do that. So I won't do that. And so no matter what the teacher says, the student won't do it unless the parent actually allows that. And so for those who maybe have, um, who are listening, who maybe have children or have nieces, nephews, something like that, going to be grandkids, um, really working on the language that you are um, speaking to your child in, because it's never too late to get them to start exploring their own possibilities and, and mm-hmm. start to be able to problem solve on their own, right? And I think also just to ta- add on to that, you know, using that positive language to start a situation to say, you know, watch, I noticed that it's slippery, you know, when it's wet, but then also kind of following up when he, whenever you see them um, really kind of process risk and then work to avoid it and make a choice to avoid it is to, to name that behavior. Like, oh, I noticed that you didn't, you know, climb up all the way to the top of the tree, even though, you know, your friend Adam did. Um, you know, I noticed that you didn't. And so can you maybe ask why they didn't do that? Maybe talk about it um, or say, I like that you didn't do that because I knew that you weren't feeling very confident in your abilities to climb all the way to the top. So I think the importance to name, to name that. And then for those kids that have difficulties assessing risk, because there are children that, that have difficulty and a hundred percent need a parent or a guardian alongside them navigating those situations, um, they're conversations to have. So I've, I've had many a conversation with kids who, you know, climb up a tree and get stuck. Um, and then I have to bring them down. And then we kind of talk about, 
you know, what happened, why we think it happened, and then what should we do next time? And so it allows, you know, those conversations or for the kid that runs and slips and falls on the slippery wet wood, you know, what's the conversation that you're having after, right? Is it, oh, why do you think you fell? You know, and let them kind of think through some of that because then that's also then allowing them to continue to process that risk out of the risky situation, but then also to kind of think through that there are consequences and the consequences can be fabulous and consequences could be potentially harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, But recognizing that, you know, every action has a consequence, whether it's positive or not, you know, they they slowed down, they didn't fall. That was the consequence that they stayed up and they, they kept on going or they didn't slow down and they fell. That was also a consequence. So giving the kids, um, just as the adult commenting on those, you know, I really liked how you, you know, you didn't jump from four, four steps up, but you stepped down two more so that you felt safe and then you jumped and you landed successfully. So just pointing that learning out to them because then they're, that continues to build up their motivation for, for making safer choices and Mm -hmm. for doing things within their realm of, of what's available in their risk. Yeah. So in, you know, when we're slowly coming, well, at least appears that we're slowly coming out of the, this current uh, pandemic that we are finding ourselves in. And uh, I think it's really amplified a lot of the, the fears that a lot of parents have. Um, and I know you, you've told me a few stories about what parents are allowing their children to do in these scenarios. Um, and, how has this pandemic kind of amplified or increased the importance of movement at home in the yard outside um, or maybe even with their, their family? It's so important. Um, I think, I mean, all of us, if you've been anywhere in the world and you've been in lockdown, um, it's been hard sometimes to find that motivation to move and, Um, I know that I haven't been living with children throughout this entire pandemic. And so I don't know what, you know, that looks like in a, in an everyday situation at home. But, um, a lot of the families that I've worked with have, have said that, you know, they found that the only way to kind of start the day was to go for a walk Mm -hmm. and to take all the kids and the whole family went for a morning walk every day. And that helped them set the stage for a successful day. And so, the families that I know are are doing well are all families that I know have included outdoor active play in their days. And um, all of them have spoken to the value that that movement has had, especially as, as a family unit, all doing it together. Um, yeah, so one of the families that I know, they are out mountain biking and out biking. I have I'd say like half my class learned how to ride two wheels during this, mm-hmm. you know, this pandemic. Um, it allows kids to be moving if they unfortunately the way that school is during this pandemic it's been a lot of screen time it's been a lot of sitting um and i know that a lot of us as teachers have been trying to integrate you know little movement breaks into what we're assigning for them but um it's different than having a recess and having you know those those structured outdoor learning times so i think parents and families need to kind of pick that up that's been missing that they normally get during the day um you know the recommendation for for children is vigorous activity for at least an hour every single day and so that helps with their mental clarity that helps with their physical development that helps with their heart health um 
so I think it it's so important to still, you know, be integrating that into a family routine every day. And, you know, every family looks different depending on what time parents are going to work, if parents are going to work, um, if they have access to outdoor space, um, if they feel comfortable going out into the outdoor space. Um, I think that every family looks different, but finding some type of active, uh, vigorous movement that works in your family every day, I think is important. So whether that's, you know, you don't feel safe or comfortable going out into public, that you're in your house creating obstacle courses and, you know, you're climbing up on top of the couch and you're, you know, you're jumping off the couch and you're, you're doing different types of movement inside your house. Um, if that's where you feel safe, um, if you're feeling a little bit more, you know, um, adventurous, <laughs> the, you know, you go for a walk in a forest and you're not walking on the trail, you're walking, through the brush and you're, you know, you're climbing on the downed trees and you're, you know, you're walking, avoiding branches, that kind of thing. Um, but finding the time for movement is probably more important than them finishing their homework. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, because if they're not moving, then their brains actually can't learn. So, um, movement is what kind of solidifies understanding, solidifies knowledge. Um, I mean that in sleep. Um, so I think that, you know, it's as hard as it is to kind of schedule that time in. Um, I think it's so important for families to be making that a priority, especially during, you know, this crazy pandemic time. Yeah. And I know even us walking around a little bit uh, down through the trails by our house, we've, you've made this comment a few times where we see families who you probably wouldn't have seen together outside walking and this isn't with young kids, this is with even teenagers, right, who at that point are probably trying to pull away, find out who they are by themselves without their parents. They're out walking with their parents because they're the only people they're allowed to hang out with at yeah. that time. <laughs> um, now, that, now is a little different where yeah. you see groups of teenagers now out all over the place. Playing basketball and stuff, uh, yeah. But this is more near the beginning where it was very interesting to see full families from, you know, maybe a child who's seven, eight, nine years old. And then you've got another one who's 13, 14. Then you've got one who's 17, 18. Right. And they're all walking together, which typically wouldn't happen mm -hmm. because some would be in school. They'd have homework. They'd have maybe be at university or something like that. So I think that was really nice to see as well is that there were a lot of families using the opportunity to yeah. be more active. Um, but I feel as though, in that situation, there's either people who are doing nothing or there's people who are doing a lot. Um, right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's rarely we're doing a little bit of it. It's one or the other. They're doing a lot of it, which is really good, or they're not doing any of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So the last thing that I, I want to chat about is now bringing this all back to schools and classrooms a little bit, because I know we've done some research on this and you guys at your school where you are you have like a, an outdoor natural uh, play area so can you just talk about kind of how you've seen this importance of risky play and movement specifically in um, children f with regards to their development reflected in how classrooms are now starting to be laid out and how the uh, the outdoor play spaces have started to be put together. Yeah. So schools are starting to kind of see the value in this active outdoor type of play. It's definitely still a battle between, you know, the health and safety 
lens um, for people who aren't in the children development area and the you know, the teachers who are hard living it every day. Um, so there is still definitely some tension between those two, um, those two camps. But, um, I know that a lot of the schools are starting to build yards specifically for the kindergartens because the kindergarten yards in Ontario are fenced in pavement areas. Mm. There's very little to no grass or mulch or dirt or trees or anything. It's just pavement and fence. So, I know that a lot of schools have been starting to, you know, realize that, especially in those early years, the ability to be in nature and to be moving in different ways is is important. And so our school was fortunate that we um, went from a pavement only yard to planting trees and having a sand pit and some mulch and some logs Um and just we've seen a difference in the type of play that the kids have. We've actually seen less injury, um, surprisingly enough. Um, way less skinned knees than we did when it was just solid pavement. Um, and so I think a lot of the educators that I am friends with, that I um, am inspired by, we all have um, really been inspired by this idea that children need to be involved in active outdoor play. Um, I'm also fortunate that the school that I'm at has now started to schedule in outdoor learning for all the grades from K to eight. It's part of our timetable. It's expected of us that, you know, we're taking our kids outside and, um, I know that schools that are in the city, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of find that green space because there isn't a lot. Um, whereas schools up in more northern Ontario, middle of Ontario, we are fortunate enough to have trails and paths and forests nearby that we can take advantage of. But, um, just the value of outdoor play is finally starting to be realized and people are working on ways to kind of integrate that into curriculum. And, um, one of my colleagues is a grade six teacher and they are outdoor learning every single day. Um, and she's found ways to kind of integrate their curriculum, their social studies curriculum, their science curriculum into being outside. And so, um, it ends up being some of the students kind of favorite learning time because they're, you know, they're running around as traders trying to, you know, trade with people. And, um, the, the outdoor learning environment just provides this plethora of learning, but then also just this freedom of being outside and just breathing fresh air and not being in a classroom for a full day is, does wonders for your mental health. Um, so I think the schools are starting to kind of see the connection between learning, outdoors, mental health and well-being, active, um, and has started to not only value it, but then also, you know, put their their learning onto timetabling and actually scheduling it into into the days. Um, the, na the natural outdoor learning spaces are slowly popping up in, in spurts. Uh, unfortunately, they're extremely expensive and um, schools don't have a huge budget for that type of um, creation. Um, but I think people are doing what the best that they can with what is available and what they are allowed to within the constraints of um, whatever a board might be putting on on that space. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's been really cool to kind of watch people transform their, you know, their outdoor learning outdoor spaces into creating obstacle courses, adding in outdoor classrooms, um, and just allowing kids the opportunities to be outside throughout the day and just seeing the value in, in that for them. Yeah. And I know, 
um, you've seen in your children when it's a rainy day and you're stuck inside all day. You see the mood. You see the like like children have to release energy, mm-hmm. right? There has to be a release of energy, and movement is how they do that. Now each child kind of maybe has a different way that they release energy yep. through movement. Um, for me, I liked roughhousing. That's what I did. Um, so whether it be with my siblings, my dad, you know, we loved doing that in the basement and that's a way to release energy. And I found myself gravitate towards more contact style sports because that's how my body wanted to release energy. Um, you know, there was quite a bit of pent up aggression in there and, um, you know, I was very, very competitive as was most other, um, the, like all my other siblings, my dad was very competitive. So, you know, a lot of that learned, but we all have different ways of, of going about doing that. But I think if you don't have the opportunity to go outside or at least even inside, have some sort of movement that you can expel, you can release some of this pent up energy. It, it makes the learning environment much more difficult for everybody not just the teacher but the students as well right for sure yeah those indoor recess days are are super challenging and and I think you know I'm I'm the teacher that I'm like it's only raining a little bit like let's put our raincoats on and go outside you know um there was a, a lot of days where it was like an indoor recess and my class was outside um, so whether the, the my admin likes that or not I'm not sure but um I just I so see the value in kids ability to focus in a classroom and if you have them inside all day yes I can do movement breaks in the classroom yes we might have our 30 minutes of physical education a day in that day but that doesn't compare to the ability for them to just run around outside at recess and Mm -hmm. to um, play with their friends and to have non-adult directed play um, a non-adult directed time um like recess is so wonderful for that for those kids. And so, yeah, I find the indoor recess days are, are difficult for me, for them, um, because they're not getting that time that's um, sort not free from adults, but a little bit less adults directed. Mm-hmm. They're missing that time. And so, yeah, I think as a Ontario society, I would say we, you know, we are like, if it's too cold, we're inside. If it's too snowy, we're inside. If it's too rainy, we're inside, you know, but you look at the forest schools in, there are some in Ontario, but in, you know, Norway and Sweden and places like that, where, you know, they believe there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. Yeah. So kids are out every day, all day, no matter what the weather is. Um, and their whole school is done outside. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, we have, we still have a ways to go. We still have a lot of learning to do, um, in ways to support kids and to build, kids ability to get outside to move and to learn yeah and I think a lot of that has to do with educating also the parents right like if if there's no such thing as bad weather only bad clothing well that you know you can't necessarily rely on the kid at a young age in kindergarten grade one to really know exactly what they have to have on for a particular situation so this is where some some coaching some um, you know assistance comes from a from a the parental um, side of things to to demonstrate that and and provide the right type of clothing for the day and um, you know I think that plays a big role in that too for sure and I think the school has a role in helping those families that you know might not be able to afford mm-hmm. raincoats and rain boots and stuff like that that you know I think if that's something that we're valuing as a education system then that's something that we need to be supporting our families and supporting 
um, our students in. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something that was really, I, I thought was really interesting. So I'm just going to kind of link two things together. So you mentioned there's really nothing that comes close to a child being able to run free outside. And you mentioned that and all I could think of is like, you know, running wild in the wild, like horses and that kind of thing. So I then I thought about a, just a term that a, uh, a really, really smart, really brilliant educator um, that I know, um, Gray Cook, who I've met a few, a few times, listened to him speak multiple times at conferences. Um, he he said it as like zoo humans, right? So we're becoming more zoo humans in that we are confining ourselves to small spaces. We're not doing the things that our bodies um, really are meant to do, hmm. such as hanging, climbing, crawling, rolling all those different types of things running fast and free right outside and we're becoming zoo humans because we're becoming you know less of what our bodies are meant to do and you're seeing an increase in injuries you're seeing an increase in chronic pain chronic disease and a lot of that like i'm not going to blame it on all of it but a lot of that has to come down with the way we move because people don't move well and mm -hmm. when they don't move well they don't move often if they don't move often right it gets yeah. a, it's a it's just this vicious vicious cycle of things um but yeah i thought that was really really interesting just when that when you said that it instantly just flicked the switch like zoo humans right like that's what we're becoming and trying to change and alter the spaces that we have our children learning in, whether it be at home or in the classroom or, you know, in the schoolyard, allowing open space, allowing more movement throughout the day and, and seeing that as a valuable piece and being able to kind of learn more in those situations as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got a, a friend of mine, Kelly Sturette, who's in San Diego and um, once again, we, we've chatted several times. And one thing that we we spoke a lot about, because I know he's really, really involved in this, is the idea of stand-up desks at schools. Now, there aren't as many here in Canada and Ontario because it is publicly funded. But um, you have a lot of privately funded schools in the States who can afford to do that kind of thing. And, but you're seeing really, really great results with regards to not having to sit at a desk because when you stand, you have the opportunity to shift weight, you're more attentive, you're able to do different things. When you're sitting, it's, there's a lot more distraction that, that seems mm -hmm. to come out. And they've got a lot of research on this. They've done a lot. Um, they've written a, he's written a book on it. And yeah. um, so I find that interesting as well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to when the... Uh, Ontario Canadian schools start to realize this and implement this. I know you have it a lot is, of movement in your It classroom. is starting and we have um and I don't know if that's just, you know, in my my little world at my school, but um, you know, the intermediates we do have standing desks for the older students. Um we have um I have asked to remove desks out of my classroom um, to create more of a flexible seating kind of situation. So yes, we still have tables and chairs, um, but removing that like structure of a desk where everyone sits at their own desk and mm -hmm. is only working wherever the teacher puts their desk. Um, so we have tables and they're shared and they can sit at whatever table they want, whenever they want. And yeah just kind of creating that flexibility again, building independence and making good choices. It's a, it's a learning, you know, if you sit beside your best friend all day, every day, 
chances are you're not going to get as much work done as if you were to find a spot maybe away from them. Um, so it just provides opportunities for learning. And like you say, the, the standing desks are, are wonderful. And so, you know, not only just for intermediate students, but trying to slowly work our way down into the younger grades. Mm -hmm. Um, but yes, it's a slow process, right? Bringing in new, um, new furniture <laughs> into, into a building. Um, and I know that a lot of, I have friends that teach at private schools in Ontario as well. And I know that standing desks and, you know, the, the ball chairs and things like that are, are, are much more common now because of all that research that you say is happening, that people are realizing the value of standing and of moving throughout the day and providing seats and providing standing and just providing options. Because like, as you said earlier, you know, every person, learns differently. Every person has a different need. Um, so if everyone's told to sit at a desk, that's not actually going to be great for everyone. It might be good for some people, mm -hmm. but not for everyone. So, so having opportunities for all of them are, are going to make sure that everyone is successful throughout their day. Yeah. I really love that. So as we wrap up here, there are several resources available to anyone interested in more information surrounding outdoor exploration and risky play. Uh, a few that we would recommend are outsideplay.ca. This is a collaborative project by the BC Children's Hospital, the University of British Columbia, and the BC Injury Research and Prevention Unit. And it really helps parents navigate risky play. So exploring what risky play is and how to match the maybe fears of risk on behalf of the parents and what the child might see as risky play so that you as a parent or as an educator feel comfortable with the amount of risk involved. There's also Purchase of Action. They have some fantastic resources for getting outside, getting moving, and can really help parents start to model really good uh, behaviors when it comes to healthy physical lifestyles. There's a great book by Angela Hanscom called Barefoot and Balanced, and it's all about being outside, being barefoot, and experiencing risky play. It is a really easy and quick read, but it has some great ideas for parents, for educators, about how to help your children with their development. And if you're really into reading research, um, Dr. Mariana Bersoni, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia, is absolutely fantastic. You can find her stuff everywhere. Uh, there's videos. There's so many resources on this um, as it starts to become something that we see as being really, really valuable because we're just not doing it anymore. Um, and so... Yeah, lots of great resources for you. Uh, also, if you ever want to read anything that you can extrapolate to younger individuals, um, anything by uh, Katie Bauman uh, would also be really great as well. Um, she's written a few books like Move Your DNA. Uh, she talks a lot about movement nutrition, and so some great stuff from her as well. Um, so where can the audience find out more maybe about you and about some of the things because most of what you post about is regarding um, like inquiry-based learning and so where can they find out more if they want some uh, information on that so I have um, an Instagram account uh, that is wonderful inquiry wonder and then full 
F-U-L inquiry. Um, so you can find me on Instagram there. I post, um, activities that I do in class right now it's different with the pandemic um but yeah just kind of posting following a day in the life of um my students and what we what we get up to um I also have a blog um that you can find um on my Instagram as well or just google you know wonderful inquiry and you'll you'll come up with that um where I've posted our inquiry some of our learning um outdoors and indoors um if that's something that you're interested in mostly specific to kindergarten um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, I can find you at home. Um, <laughs> I want to thank you a lot for coming on. It's, um, it's been wonderful to be able to chat about this because I know we talk about this all the time. Um, but being able to share this with, um, the audience and other people who are, you know, whether they be personal trainers or, um, you know, young parents trying to kind of navigate what to do and how to do um, this whole movement-based thing with their children. I think this is really valuable. So thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.